Hello, and welcome to Fundamentals of Torah for Non-Jews, class number one. My name is Doug Taylor, and it's a pleasure to have you join me. The purpose of this class is to cover a basic foundation of the Torah life for a non-Jewish person. We'll be talking about the Torah, we'll be covering an introduction to what are sometimes called the Seven Noahide Laws, we'll talk about character development, how the Torah impacts us in our everyday lives, uh, prayer, holidays, and I'll be introducing a number of tools that I've learned over the years from my studies with the rabbis uh, that can help you be more successful in your Torah learning and also more successful in other areas of your life. Uh, I am not Jewish, but I have had the opportunity to study with some uh, great rabbinical scholars, uh, starting with Rabbi Israel Chait of Yeshiva B'nai Torah in Far Rockaway, New York, a brilliant Torah scholar who has devoted much time and energy to uh, helping non-Jewish people who are interested in uh, learning more about Torah and living uh, the Torah life. I've also had the opportunity to study for about the past 20 years with Rabbi Morton Moskowitz of Northwest Yeshiva High School in Mercer Island, Washington. Uh, I've also studied with Rabbi Reuben Mann of, of uh, Plainview, New York, also teaches at Yeshiva B'nai Torah in Far Rockaway, uh, Rabbi Saul Zucker of Teaneck, New Jersey, uh, and some others. In addition, I've had the opportunity to co-author a series of articles with Rabbi Moskowitz a number of years ago that were published uh, in a local newspaper, articles about rational thinking. And we compiled all those uh, into an e-book that is available on Masora.org called Getting It Straight, Practical Ideas for a Life of Clarity. So I need to give you just a little bit of fine print uh, before we get started, and that is while virtually everything that I have learned about Torah has come from my teachers, I have to take full responsibility for the contents of this class. And if there are any errors in what I'm about to share with you, uh, those errors rest entirely with me. It is important that you understand that I have a bias going into all of this. Uh, I'm very interested in what's true. <clears throat> and these days, there are those people who you may have run across who will say, well, there really is no truth, or there's no reality, uh, or you can't really know uh, what the truth is, uh, or it's just what you make it, and those kinds of things. The problem with that is that we live in a very practical world. And it's very easy to say theoretical platitudes all day, and maybe we even, you know, sound... Uh, good to ourselves, until one day something happens, like the doctor says, you have a brain tumor. And suddenly, all that wonderful theory goes out the window. All those wonderful flowery-sounding statements about not being able to know the truth and so forth, they don't cut it, because we want answers from the doctor. How dangerous is it? What can be done? I mean, uh, can you give me a, a prescription? Are there any treatments available? Has medical science figured out a cure? And there's another question going on that we may or may not verbalize, which is, am I going to die from this? And if so, how long have I got to live? Now, if you can imagine the horror of having to go through something like that, if at that point the doctor said, well, you know, there really is no truth in the neurosciences. I mean, it's it's whatever you think it is. Our formerly pseudo-philosophical self is likely going to have 
an on-the-spot apoplectic fit because posturing like that is great until you find yourself in a real firefight with real bullets. We live in a practical world. And I will submit to you that there is truth. And in many cases, it can be known. Not always, perhaps, but more so, I would say, than we sometimes think. I mean, we deal with it all day, every day. Uh, for example, somebody could argue that, you know, we really can't know if we're real or not. But the truth is that we all know what the result will be if we stand on the freeway in front of a Mack truck going 70 miles an hour, or if we're in an amusement park and the bungee cord breaks. So, I would submit that, again, truth can be known. I, I don't claim to have all the answers about that, or necessarily even a significant fraction of them, but at the same time, I know what I think, and I know why I think it. And that's today. And I reserve the right to change that tomorrow if someone can show me that there's a more sound approach. There was a great Jewish sage, I believe it was Sajigian, who once said that a person should always think that he is right. Because after all, you know, who else are we each going to rely on? And, and this is a very important and, at the same time be willing to retract if someone can show us that we're wrong. In other words, I have to operate on the basis of what I know. And at the same time, I need to be open enough and intellectually honest enough to accept that if someone can show me a new idea that's correct or that one of the ideas that I'm operating on right now is incorrect, and I need to be willing to change that. So hopefully, as we go through this class, uh, you'll question what I'm saying, and that questioning will stimulate your own thinking and we will all end up uh, at a, a place of increased knowledge and wisdom when we get done. So let's begin. Now, it would be very easy to jump in right away into a study of Torah for non-Jews, but I would suggest that we need to tackle some foundational basics first. In our society, we tend to start well past the beginning. If you've ever been involved in a so-called religious discussion, you know that sometimes these can turn into what I would call emotional snowball fights really easily. Uh, <clears throat> I'll give you an example. Years ago in my town, uh, at the time, a pastor of a church wrote an article in the local newspaper expressing his concern about the spread of homosexuality and his concerns about what this might mean for his children growing up in society. Now, from his religious viewpoint, homosexuality was wrong, and he made that point clear in his article. Well, you can probably imagine there was a firestorm of letters to the editor in protest. And what was unfortunate and sad to me was that those letters were little more than emotional venting. They raked the pastor over the coals, they called him names, and in general they just stirred up a lot of dust. And we see that kind of thing going on in our own media today. In only one case that I saw, did one of the writers raise a potentially legitimate argument against the pastor's position. And even that writer still included some emotional name-calling in his letter. So this went on, and, and finally, after a while, I wrote a letter to the editor, which they printed, uh, interestingly, pointing out 
the uselessness of the discussion. Why was it useless? Because in general, I would submit, and I'm making a broad generalization here, and I recognize that generalizations have their challenges, but for purposes of this argument, I would submit that there are two kinds of people. Those who think there is a creator of the universe who gave us rules to live by, and those who don't. Now, the ones who do think there is a creator of the universe who gave us rules to live by, generally, and I know there are exceptions, but, but bear with me, generally believe that the rules set down by that creator forbid homosexuality. For those who don't think there's a creator of the universe, and therefore that a creator of the universe didn't set down rules for us to live by, they will likely find no problem with homosexuality. So, the point I was making in my article was, to argue the issue of homosexuality is a pointless venture because each side of the argument is likely starting from different premises. In other words, no discussion about that subject is ever going to go anywhere if the people involved in the discussion are arguing from different foundational assumptions. It's the differences in those assumptions that they will first have to tackle and only then will the discussion of homosexuality have any hope of proceeding constructively. Let me give you a second example. When you study geometry in school, one of the axioms that you begin with is the idea that two parallel lines in a plane never intersect. Now that seems intuitively obvious, but you can't prove it, because you're talking about infinity here. But for Euclidean geometry, it's, it's accepted. That's the idea of an axiom. It's something you accept to begin with that you can't prove. And from that axiom, once you accept that, then from that you can prove all kinds of other things and you can build a whole system you know, of geometry. But there is also non-Euclidean geometry that doesn't necessarily accept the axiom that two parallel lines in a plane never intersect. And you can derive a number of things in that system as well. Now, if two people get together, two mathematicians, and they were to argue one of the downstream conclusions from one system against a corresponding downstream conclusion from the other system, the argument would be pointless. Again, because the two sides are arguing from different premises. They're starting from a different place. And what they would have to do is back way up and discuss the differences in the underlying assumptions first. And once those differences in assumptions are dealt with, then they're in a position to discuss the downstream conclusions. So before we launch in the detail, into the details about Torah for non-Jews, let's back way up and discuss some foundational questions. Perhaps the most important of which is, how do we know what's true? How do we know what's true? In my experience, this question is almost universally overlooked. Yet, knowing the answer is fundamental to our knowledge of virtually anything. It doesn't have to be about religious matters. It could be about, you know, uh, tax returns or accounting issues or law issues or medical issues or technology issues. Uh, how are we going to know what's true? Do we know it's true because we read it in a book? Because somebody older than us told, it, told us that it was that way? Or maybe because it's posted on the internet? or because a so-called religious leader said so? This is a question that is really worth chewing on for a while, 
I'm going to suggest an answer. But before I do, if you want to get the most out of this class, I would invite you to turn off your recording and think seriously about this for a few minutes. Because it's one of the most fundamental questions that a person can ask. How do you know what's true? So, I'll presume that you've had a chance to think about the question. And here's my response. Maimonides, who was one of the great Jewish scholars, suggested there are three ways to know what is true. The first one is direct observation or experience. So let's talk about that one first. Direct observation or experience. It's exactly that. We have five senses. Everybody knows that. We use those to learn and understand about what's true around us in the physical universe. I saw it. I heard it. I tasted it. I touched it. I smelled it. And just about any knowledge of the physical world starts with these. Someone, somewhere, experienced something directly. Now, there are some important limitations here. First, I can't directly observe or experience everything. For example, I wasn't alive during World War II, but I hold that it occurred, and we'll talk about that in just a minute in the, the second part of this. The second thing is that we have to keep in mind that our senses can be fooled. Movie makers and magicians do it all the time. I mean, the art of special effects has become an amazingly complex discipline. Photographs are so easily modified today that any given photograph can't necessarily be taken as real. So we have to be on the lookout for those types of things. But nevertheless, you know, if I look out in my driveway and I see that my car is sitting there at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, then I can say, I know that my car was in my driveway at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I saw it. It was there. I personally experienced that. So that's the first of three ways that I would suggest we can know what's true. Direct observation or experience. The second way is reasoning, such as a logical deduction or proof or a preponderance of evidence. And let's start with logical deductions or proofs. And of course that presupposes that we have a knowledge of logic. Interestingly, as an aside, in the days of the ancients, logic was considered a prerequisite to the study of any other subject matter. Because how could you know whether you were reaching a proper conclusion without a knowledge of logic and deduction? Yet today, in colleges generally, logic is an elective course. Consider how you would feel being diagnosed with a serious disease or medical condition by a doctor who has never been taught how to reach a proper conclusion. It's a little different focus on, in our society these days than uh, the way things were in past times. So logic. As an example, logic dictates that a statement cannot be simultaneously true and not true. Uh, if A equals B, then it is not true that A is not equal to B. To put that in, in, say, a common framework, if I'm in Los Angeles at a given moment in time, then I cannot be in Venice, Italy at the same moment. Okay, And courts use this, of course, all the time uh, in trying to demonstrate that certain things could not have happened. 
Then, in this same category, there was what we would call a preponderance of evidence. So consider this possibility. You're walking along the street, and all of a sudden you turn a corner, and there's a guy who comes up to you and says, you'll never guess what happened to me. Uh, I was abducted by aliens earlier today. They beamed me up in their spaceship. I had a really nice lunch of grilled cheese sandwiches with Elvis Presley, who's been traveling around with them for some time. They just beamed me back onto the sidewalk right at this moment when you walked around the corner and you're the first person I've told about it. Now, would we believe him? I mean, we weren't there. We have no direct experience. It could be true, but then again, uh, I don't know. Now, let's take another example. Consider World War II. Many of us didn't experience that event directly. Virtually none of us that I know of experienced World War I directly. Certainly not the Civil War. Yet, we believe that all those things happened. Why? This is where the important concept of the preponderance of evidence comes into play. Thousands upon thousands of people experienced the Second World War, the First World War, the Civil War, and those kinds of things. Hundreds of books have been written about them. Movies have been made about them. There is so much direct observational evidence by those who experienced them that we can reasonably rely on their observations and their direct experience. Now, it is possible, and certainly happens, that one or two people make something up or they lie about it. But the larger the group that is sort of in the know on a conspiracy deal like that, the harder it is to, be, to keep the lie a secret. Conspiracies become more difficult and at some point virtually impossible the more people are involved. If one person tells me that a bank was robbed in my town earlier today, you know, I may or may not believe him, depending on the person and maybe some other factors. But if a thousand people reported to me that there was a bank robbery in my town earlier today because they personally watched it happen from inside the bank and outside the bank and all around the bank, not because they read it on the internet, but they actually personally experienced it, then I could be fairly certain that something resembling a bank robbery, bank robbery likely occurred. We learn virtually all of history this way. Uh, when there's a preponderance of evidence, we can be fairly certain that an event happened. In other historical situations where we may have the account of only one or a small handful of people, well, then the accuracy of that account becomes more open to question. In fact, much of the knowledge that we have in life comes from a preponderance of evidence based on the direct observations of others. If a doctor, for example, gives us a certain medication, we generally trust that it will work not because we observe the clinical trials, but because we assume there is a preponderance of evidence that the trials were conducted and that they yielded positive results. So, that's our second area. Logic, uh, reasoning, and a preponderance of evidence. There's a third area that Maimonides notes where we can uh, know that something is true, and that is prophecy from a known prophet. Now, this would require that we first have to establish that something called prophecy exists, and then we'd have to establish the criteria by which we can know that someone is a bona fide prophet. 
that's an area outside the context of this course. So we're not going to go into that in this particular series, but I just want to include it in the list uh, to make the list complete from a Maimonides standpoint. For our purposes, we're going to focus on the first two, direct observation or experience and uh, logical deduction or proof, uh, reasoning or preponderance of evidence. Now at this point, someone could ask, well, what about belief? Ah, belief. So let's ask the question, what is belief? When somebody says, well, I believe this, what does that mean? And I would submit to you that belief is a conviction that I have concerning something about which I am ignorant. Let me repeat that. Belief is a conviction that I have concerning something about which I am ignorant. Why am I ignorant about it? Because if I knew about it through direct observation or experience or through reasoning, then I wouldn't need to believe. Consider this. Have you ever heard anyone ask, do you believe in yogurt? I doubt that you have. I mean, I certainly haven't, uh, other than myself ask the question. Uh, you'd say, well, uh, yogurt? Huh? You mean the, the creamy white stuff comes in small containers at the store, you know, usually in a variety of fruit flavors? And I'd probably say, sure, I'm familiar with it. You know, I got some up in the fridge. But I wouldn't I wouldn't say, well, I believe in yogurt. I mean, it wouldn't mean anything for someone to say that they believe in yogurt. I know about yogurt. I've bought it. I've opened the container. I've tasted it. I've experienced it directly. The only reason that, you know, I might need to believe in yogurt would be if I had no knowledge of it, in which case I'd be ignorant about it. But since I have the direct knowledge, there's no belief involved. So then someone might ask, well, well, that's great if you can talk about something that you can see and touch, but what about something that you can't see and touch? Okay, how about electricity? Electricity is a flow of electrons. Which of us has actually seen the flow of electrons through a wire? Yet, do we say that we believe in electricity? No, because we've worked with the effects of electricity long enough and studied it long enough to know that it actually exists. And the only reason that I would need belief around this would be if I were ignorant about it, that is, if I had no knowledge of it. So I would submit to you that in terms of knowing what's true, belief in and of itself means nothing. I mean, there are people who believe all kinds of things. There are people, you know, who believe that we never sent astronauts to the moon and that, you know, it was all filmed on a back lot somewhere and everyone was tricked. Uh, there are people that believe all kinds of things. Does the fact that they believe them make them true? Does it make them not true? Actually, neither one. I would suggest to you that a belief doesn't tell us anything and it virtually ends productive discussion. And here's why. This point was brought home to me years ago 
uh, when, as a consulting actuary, I was working on behalf of an organization that was considering giving a cost of living adjustment uh, to their retired employees who, re who were receiving pensions from the company's pension plan. This was back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, when inflation was rampant. And people who are getting pension benefits from a pension plan generally get them uh, on a fixed dollar amount basis. Maybe it's $700 a month, and the $700 a month comes every month as long as they live. But when inflation is rampant, then everything starts to cost more. But if you're on a fixed income, you find yourself in very difficult circumstances because your fixed income won't buy what it bought last year because the price of everything is going up except your fixed income isn't going up. So in those days, organizations were considering, gee, even though you know we don't uh, uh, have an obligation to do so, should we give um, these pensioners a cost of living adjustment? And the company uh, that had retained me was asking me to look into this. They knew they were under no legal obligation to do it, uh, but they wanted me to st and some other people to study the issue and uh, uh, come up with some thoughts as to whether they should grant an increase to these retired people. And we studied the issue and looked at it, and finally we came up with a report and we determined there was no business reason to grant a cost of living increase but that it was a judgment call on the part of senior management of the company. And we derived a mathematical approach uh, to show them that if they wanted to do that, no matter what amount of money that they chose to invest in that, we gave them a, an algorithm for uh, sharing that in, in a uh, what we consider to be an equitable manner across all the retired uh, employees. Now, this decision went all the way up to the board of directors. And all the directors agreed not to give the increase, except one of them. And his position, after they'd gone through the whole report apparently and discussed it, was, yes, I hear all the facts, but I believe we have an obligation to these people. Now, my manager, I wasn't at the board meeting, but my manager related this story to me later. And he very sagely said, as soon as someone says, Yes, I hear all the facts, but I believe such and such. All debate stops. Why? Because you cannot debate a belief. This is a very, very critical point. It is virtually impossible to debate a belief. If six people are standing around an all-white car, and five of them agree that the car is white, but the sixth person says, Yes, I see that the car is white, and that you all agree the car is white, but I believe the car is red. What can you say? How will you argue with such a position? I mean, at that point, all discussion stops. There's nothing more that can be said. There's no way to continue. So then that might lead us to the question of, well, what about authorities or experts? Shouldn't we believe them? So let's look at that. Why would we believe an authority or an expert? Well, maybe they have more knowledge than us. I mean, that's true in many classroom situations. If I'm trying to learn mathematics, and I'm just a beginner, and the teacher has an advanced mathematics degree, then it would seem reasonable to listen 
to what they have to say. But should I just trust them? Should I just accept everything that they say? Well, consider this. Why does a five-year-old child not cross the street when cars are coming? Because mommy or daddy said so. I mean, the child, hopefully, obeys its parents. But what would we think of an adult who gave the same answer to the same question? A 25-year-old person is asked, why don't you cross the, the street when cars are coming? And they say, well, my mommy told me not to. We would really wonder what's up with that person. Because we would expect an adult to say, I don't cross because there are cars coming and I don't want to get hit. Not because, you know, mom told me. So let's extrapolate that principle. We may accept known authorities or experts temporarily until we attain enough knowledge to test their statements and establish our own knowledge. Now, as an actuary, if I were questioned on why I used a particular mathematical formula in a particular situation, it would be ridiculous of me to answer because my college professor said so. I'd be expected to explain the mathematical basis for my use of that formula and why it was appropriate in that situation. So likewise, I would suggest that we are all ultimately responsible for our own knowledge and the decisions we make. We cannot push that responsibility off on someone else. Flip Wilson's classic line, The devil made me buy that dress, just doesn't cut it. We are responsible, each of us, for our own lives. So I have to decide who I'm going to trust as an expert and how far I want to go to confirm that knowledge. So in math, I would keep studying with that mathematical uh, professor or teacher until I got to the point where I understood the ideas clearly enough that I didn't say, well, I, I do the problem this way because my teacher told me to. I do the problem this way because this is what makes logical sense. And here I'll show you how that comes about. Let's take another example, healthcare. If I have a skin problem, I may need to go see a dermatologist. Now, do I need to learn everything the dermatologist knows in order to follow his advice? Of course not. But I am responsible for researching at least enough to choose a dermatologist who I think knows what he or she is doing. Otherwise, I'm the one who's going to get the consequences. So in certain specialty areas, like medicine, I may choose an authority and follow their advice without fully understanding all the knowledge underlying that advice. In other areas, I may choose an expert and accept what they're telling me temporarily while I'm learning. But ultimately, my goal should be to develop enough knowledge to test the experts' conclusions and prove them for myself, because then those conclusions become mine. Then I have the knowledge and I know I'm not dependent on someone else. Okay? So far, so good. So given that we now have a method for establishing what's true, let's take our next foundational question. Can we prove that the universe has a creator? I mean, this is foundational. We need to establish this before we proceed any further. Because 
going with the idea of, well, I, I know God exists because I feel it or I sense it or whatever, doesn't cut it. I mean, this is an important enough idea that we need to be able to demonstrate it. <clears throat> and if we can use the method we've just described to identify what's true in every area of our lives, why would we abandon it when it comes to the area of the creator of the universe? It's very, very important that we not skip this important step. So let me suggest first a demonstration. Now this is not technically a proof, <clears throat> excuse me, but I find it so compelling as to virtually constitute a proof. Suppose you walk into a room <clears throat> and there's someone standing beside a piece of paper that's taped to the wall and as you get close to it and you look uh, at it you realize that the paper is a freshly inked copy of the United States Declaration of Independence. And the person in the room says to you, you'll never guess what just happened. I tossed this bottle of ink against the wall and it formed itself into this flawless copy of the Declaration of Independence. Now my first question is, would you believe him? If the answer is yes, why would you believe him? If your answer is no, why wouldn't you believe him? Okay, two important questions. Would you believe him? <clears throat> and depending on your answer, why or why not? Now, I ask you to hold that thought, and let's consider a second scenario. You walk in to a large boardroom of a big corporation. You know the kinds, big rooms, got a big long table. And let's say that it has 24 chairs around it, all perfectly lined up. At each seat at the table, there is a blotter, a yellow pad of paper, a pen, a coaster, and a coffee mug, all perfectly aligned. Standing at one end of the room next to a window and a large supplies cabinet is the person who manages this room. And as you stand there surveying this perfectly aligned scene, that person says to you, you'll never believe what happened. I accidentally left the window open here last night and a big wind came along and blew the supplies cabinet door open and then the wind blew all of these blotters, pads, pens, coasters, and coffee mugs from the cabinet onto the table in perfect alignment. Now, same question as before. Would you believe that person? And second question, if yes, why? If no, why not? And I would ask you to, to, to very carefully think about the second question. Why or why not would you believe them? And I'm assuming that your answer about would you believe them is probably no. So the second question is, why wouldn't you believe them? And your answer to the second question as to why you wouldn't believe them probably centers around the preposterous unlikelihood that these events could actually happen. So what's the general principle operating here? I would suggest that it's this. 
Whenever we see order, we assume there is intelligence behind that. Let me repeat that. Whenever we see order, we assume there is intelligence behind it. Think about that. Anytime we see that things are orderly, or that they're stacked up, or that they operate with an obvious system, we assume that someone with intelligence made it that way. We virtually never see order in the practical world around us, going to work, going to school, doing all the stuff we do. We, we virtually never see order and assume that it's random. So when we look at the world and at the wonder of our own, our own human bodies, what do we see? Incredible order. Systems that operate in an amazing and harmonious way. From the cellular systems within our bodies to the nervous system, the digestive system, the reproductive system, muscular and skeletal systems. Uh, if we go uh, microscopic, the uh, at the, the small things that go on just to allow us to, you know, see and, and translate light out there into vision and, and waves into sound that hits our inner ear and, and is transferred through pulses up into our brain that allows us to tell the difference between, you know, a chicken and a symphony. All that stuff going on. And then if you go to a bigger scale you've got atmospheric systems, ecological systems, plants, animals, tides, an almost limitless array of systems in nature that act in harmony and allow our planet to continue to exist. So how is it that we could look at the boardroom and dismiss the idea that the wind blew that into existence yet we can look at the complexity of the world, not to mention space, and actively consider the possibility that all of that incredible order came into existence without intelligence behind it. I submit that to you that it would be ridiculously inconsistent of us to hold those two positions simultaneously. So given that, let's look at a proof that there is a creator of the universe, the world, and its inhabitants. And I'm taking this proof from a classic book called Duties of the Heart by Rabbi Bakya ben Joseph ibn Pakuda. This book is highly recommended for non-Jewish people interested in Torah, or Jewish people for that matter, and is published by Feldheim. You can get it at www.feldheim.com. It's F-E-L-D-H-E-I-M.com. Duties of the Heart. And what the author suggests is that there are three statements that we need to establish in order to construct our proof. The first statement is, a thing does not make itself. Now what's the proof of that statement? A thing does not make itself. So consider the following. Anything that existed after having not existed must either have made itself or been made by something else. Only those two possibilities. I would suggest no other possibilities exist. It's got to be one of those. Anything that exists after having not existed must either A, have made itself, or B, been made by something else. Okay? So we have these two alternatives, A and B. Now, 
since those are the only possibilities, and it has to be one of those, then if we can show that one of those is impossible, we have proven the other by logic. So let's consider uh, alternative A, which states that anything that exists after having not existed must have made itself. Now, if this is true, we can go further and say that anything that made itself must have made itself either before it existed or after it existed. No other possibilities exist. It's got to be one of those. But if we look at the first of those and say that the thing made itself before it existed, then I would submit to you that's impossible. For at that time it was nothing, and you can't get something out of nothing. Okay, very important. You can't get something out of nothing. Nowhere do we ever see anywhere in the universe any physical demonstration of any kind where you physically get something out of nothing. On the other hand, if we look at the B alternative and say, well, the thing made itself after it existed, well, then it really didn't do anything because it already existed. So I would submit to you that both of those possibilities are impossible, in which case it's impossible for a thing to have created itself, which means that our original postulate A is impossible. Therefore, the answer must be B, that is, anything that exists after having not existed must have been made by something else. Now, that seems very intuitively obvious, but we wanted to walk through the steps just so we clearly established that. Anything that exists after having not existed had to have been made by something else. So we have therefore proved our first statement, which is a thing does not make itself. Okay, so far? Now, here's our second statement. Causes are limited in number. And since their number is limited, they must have a first cause before which there is no other. Let me repeat that. Causes are limited in number. Since their number is limited, they must have a first cause before which there is no other. Okay. Now we have to prove that. That's just the second statement that we have to prove. So let's think about causes for a moment. A rock was perhaps caused by a volcanic reaction which was caused by some energy forces under the ground, which was caused by something else. I mean, we have cause related to cause related to cause. A person was caused, in a sense, by his or her parents, who were caused by their parents, who were caused by their parents, and so forth. Now the question comes, how far back does all this go? In order to answer that, let's consider this idea. Whatever has an end must have a beginning. Whatever has an end must have a beginning. That is, the effect of a cause must have a first cause. Why is that true? Because anything that is infinite can't be made up of discrete, that is, individually separate and distinct parts. Anything that is infinite cannot be made up of individually separate and distinct parts. And anything that is made up of discrete parts can't be infinite. 
and here's why that's true. Imagine something that is infinite. Now, if it had discrete parts, then you should be able to take away one of those parts. If you could, then the remaining thing must be less than what it was before you took away the discrete part. Now, if the remainder is still infinite, then we would have one infinite thing that's greater than another, which is impossible by definition. If, on the other hand, the remaining thing is finite, then adding back in the discrete part that you took away would still make it finite. Yet we started out with the assumption that it was infinite. So we would have the same thing be both infinite and finite, and that's an impossible contradiction. So therefore, we can conclude it's impossible to take away a part from something that's infinite, and therefore anything that has a part must be finite. Now, I, bear with me, and I appreciate this. This is somewhat abstract, uh, but, but hang in there with me. Now, when we look around at the world, we see that everything's made up of discrete parts. I mean, take a people, for instance. You know, there's you, your parents, their parents, their parents before them, etc. And all these, these causes are discrete parts. So from that, it follows that their causes are infinite in number. Sorry, finite in number, excuse me. Their causes are finite in number. And there must be a first cause before which there is no other cause, because we just demonstrated the causes cannot go back infinitely, because they're discrete parts. Otherwise, we run into that impossible contradiction we just explained. So I would submit to you that establishes our second statement, which is, causes are limited in number. And since their number is limited, they must have a first cause before which there is no other. Then there's our third statement, which is anything that is composite was brought into existence. That's our third statement. Anything that is composite was brought into existence. And here's the proof of that. Anything that's composite is made up of more than one component. Okay? Those components had to exist before the composite thing. I mean, you can't put the thing together without the parts. And the one who put the composite thing together had to exist before the composite thing because that one had to be there in order to put the composite thing together. In addition, I would submit to you that everything either has to be infinite or it was brought into existence because there are no other possibilities here. So we've shown that something that is infinite cannot have parts. Yet something that is composite is, by definition, made up of parts or components. And furthermore, something that is composite had a beginning, and something that is infinite can't have a beginning, or else it would not be infinite. So therefore, something composite can't be infinite, and therefore it had to have been brought into existence. Okay? Again, this is fairly abstract, so I ask you to hang in there with me. Um, so now let me repeat our three statements that we've just proven. Number one, a thing doesn't make itself. Number two, causes are limited in number, and since their number is limited, they have to have a first cause before which there isn't another. And three, something that was composite was brought into existence. 
So now let's take a look at these three statements and see what they uh, lead us to regarding the existence of a creator. When we look around at the world and space and so forth, we see that it's made up of many parts. Uh, there are the stars, the sky, the earth itself, rocks, mountains, water, plants, animals, birds, uh, the oceans, rivers, lakes, and so forth. All these things are made up of parts. For example, a bird is made up of feathers and bones and organs and so forth. So it's clear that the world and everything that is in it is made up of parts. Uh, that is, it's a composite. Now, we showed a little earlier that anything that is a composite was brought into existence. And we also showed that a thing does not make itself. Thus, the world and the universe has to have had a creator who brought it into existence. In addition, since we showed that causes are limited in number, that is, that there can't be an infinite series of causes, then the world had to have had a beginning before which there was no other beginning. That is, it had to have had a first cause before which there was no other cause. That cause is the Creator, as we identified uh, previously. So, we've shown that there must be a creator of the world and similarly the universe. Thank you for hanging in there with me uh, through this and I hope it's been very helpful to you. Uh, we will have uh, the next session where we will uh, move on and uh, cover some uh, additional foundation laying uh, and then we'll move on from there. Again, thank you so much for joining. Uh, if you have any questions, uh, you're welcome to uh, email me at doug at thinkingdynamics.com, and I hope that you'll join us on our next series.